All right, so Titus is uh, Paul's protege. Remember, sent to the island of Crete, and so he's there, and uh, he's launching uh, or carrying on this work that the Apostle Paul had begun. And uh, we want to start with this big idea. Now, I want you to remember that uh, through this journey, there's been some uh, consistent themes through these three chapters. And Paul has sort of revisited a few things. Uh, he keeps coming back and making sure that uh, we understand uh, what it is that God wants to communicate. Again, because like any good parent, our Father God knows that if we're going to get something, He's going to have to repeat it, right? That's right. I mean, we all know that. Um, it's true about us and our children, and it's certainly true about us as God's children. So here's the big idea. Unity is a big deal to God. It is a big deal to God. Now, that's probably not new information to anybody, but the problem is, is not that unity is a big deal to God. The problem is how misunderstood unity is, this issue of unity is. And what I uh, find today is that oftentimes in the church, what people think is unity is not unity at all. And, um, and vice versa. That and this is the place, because Paul's touched on this multiple times through this letter, but the reason we've saved this conversation until now is because Paul is going to drive this point home at the end, and he's going to give us some absolute clarity. Now, let's look, for example, at some of the things Paul says in other places. In Romans 14, he says, uh, many of the New Testament letters we know uh, are a calls to live in harmony. And so he tells the church at Rome, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. So remember last week we talked about, in a sense, uh, living at peace with those in authority over us. But this is different. Remember back in the study of 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. And we know that they were not in the church at Corinth. And even in Ephesus, Paul says in Ephesians 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So we need to know that not all unity is good, and not all controversy is foolish. You see, there are things that we shouldn't, you don't, it would be an absolute train wreck theologically, to think that we, we uh, are devoted to unity above all things. Because if you're, unif if you're, if you're aligned with something that's wrong, Tony's not uni unifying himself with you. See? And you shouldn't be unifying yourself with somebody else. But here's what happens. In our world of, you know, most of the people of, in this generation are were raised in codependent homes and have some level of codependency in their life now. I mean, like it's in epidemic proportions in our culture. And this codependency is a big issue when it comes to unity. Yeah, I mean, I talk to people who are, you know, just, they're just telling me, you know, 
in the course of conversation. You know, I'm asking them how they're doing. You know, how's their walk with the Lord? How are you doing in your D group? How are you doing? And they're telling me about, you know, well, we, you know, this and this and this. And I mean, you're reading junk you shouldn't read, but you don't want to offend somebody. Huh? You're having conversations you shouldn't have, but you don't want to offend somebody. You see, that's codependence. That's, that's completely unhealthy. That ought to be a controversy. But this whole thing about, you know, let's just all get along above all things. That's not unity. So we need, so how, the, the, this is the deal. If we, if we just waste our time tonight unless we really dig into this and solve, answer the question, well, how do you know the difference? I mean, how do you know when uh, to, to, to strive for unity and when to say, no, nah, that's not going to work? Well, let's look at the context for what's going on. See, Paul says in verse 9, up at the top of your paper, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they're unprofitable and useless. Now, this is some straightforward language. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition or warning, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Listen, that is very much translated to be politically correct. Because in the original language, that is a very harsh statement. So he, that doesn't just drop out of the sky. What was said just before avoid foolish disputes? Look at verse 8 down at the bottom of your page. Remember, this was where we ended last week. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So clearly what Paul said previously is good and should be affirmed and should be repeated and should be, we, should, we should fight to be unified around these things. But then he shifts gears and says, avoid foolish disputes, genealogies. Now, let, let's clarify a couple things. Genealogies, this has absolutely nothing to do with you and swabbing your mouth with Ancestry.com. If that's your thing, go for it. The Bible's not talking about that. That's not what it's talking about. So what is it talking about? Well, it's the same nonsense we got going on today. This is genealogies about uh, uh, biblical characters trying to, uh, you know, trying to, to connect lineage back to some biblical thing so that you somehow, you know, have some rightful place in some position because of some lineage that you have. There's, I mean, think about the Catholic Church and all their nonsense about being linked back to uh, Peter. There is a perfect example. It's a bunch of genealogies. What about all the genealogies that are running around? There's, you, could, you could buy endless 
waste your money on endless books about genealogies, about extra-biblical characters, and about extra-biblical information, and about all this stuff that, quite frankly, has about zero value. How do I know? Because why am I studying this if I haven't mastered the 66 books that contain the things that God said I need to know? Then why would I be studying this? Right? I mean, that just makes sense. But here's what happens. You get lulled into, you get lured into watching some documentary, loosely used term, on Netflix or the Discovery Channel or something about some extra biblical nonsense. It's genealogies. I mean, listen, you're, you're, you're in, in territory that you got no business being in. No business being in. But it's a, it's a constant issue. The contentious, the, so it's foolish disputes. Strivings about the law. Good gracious. I deal with this all the time on the mission field when I'm, out, when I'm in underdeveloped countries and dealing with uh, young church, churches and young believers. They have so many problems about the law. This was a big issue. I taught for uh, 10 days in a seminary in India and this was probably the number one thing that we were having to contend with constantly is trying to, you know, they're hung up on the law all the time. So it's, a, it's an issue. It's an issue today. It was an issue then. So what is the context? Back to verse 8, the one that preceded this statement. Well, it all, what you need to do is underline these things. That is the key. These things is a reference to what Paul said in verses 4 through 7. So when he says, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, you need to know what these things are. Because these things are the things that we need to be unified about. Because these are the things that matter. And so here's what these things are. In verses 4 through 7, first he introduced the kindness of God. Then he talked about the appearing of Jesus. Then he talked about the rebirth of the Spirit. Then he moved from that to justification by grace. And finally, he talked about the hope of eternal life. So if you go back and read 4, 5, 6, and 7, there's what these things are, which means these are the things that we unify on. These are the things that we should constantly be talking about. These are the things that comprise the gospel. When you talk about the gospel, well, these are the things that we're talking about. You know what the good news is? The good news is that Jesus came and, he's a, and it proves that God is a kind and loving God. And that the Spirit of God will bring you to a place of repentance where you can find new birth and you can be forgiven and justified and declared right with God and receive the gift of eternal life. That is the gospel. And these are the things we should be focused on, we should be talking about. Instead of all these other things that Paul says is a bunch of nonsense, which is very apparently enticing to a lot of people for whatever reason i'm not exactly sure but the gospel is always 
excellent and profitable for everyone. Always. It's always profitable. It's always excellent. Now here's the principle. We can never talk about the gospel too much. That's impossible. That's impossible. So the previous blanks, now the gospel is always excellent and profitable for everyone. Okay, well, let's, let's break that down. Let's break down the, the work of the, the Trinity to be profitable for everyone. We have the Father's mercy on us. The Father was merciful to us. Remember when we talked about mercy through the book of Hosea. Mercy is, the, is how God initiates his love for us because he looks at us, he fully grasps and understands our present condition, and that's what moves him towards us. You see, mercy, God sees that we're condemned. God knows the, God knows the, the wrath that we are uh, under. And so in mercy, he moves towards us, which then initiates his grace for us. But the fact that the Father's mercy sends the Son to intervene on us, that we ought to be talking about that. That never gets old. Or what about the Son's work for us? So the Father's merciful to send the Son, but then the Son, the Son makes himself as nothing And even takes on a cross on our behalf. How does that get old? Like what in the world, what else is there to talk about? And then we've got the Spirit's presence in us. So now we're saying, and not only that, but now God has indwelled us. And so he lives within us. And he, wherever we go, he's with us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. He leads us and guides us. I mean... This is the greatest news you could ever dream of. So what in the world could, could di distract us from that? What could detour us off of that? Because the, the principle is just you could never talk about the gospel too much. Never. Ever. You think about the people that are part of this church family. All there, We have people in this fellowship, all they ever talk about is the gospel. It's amazing. It's wonderful. You know, they're the people that I love to talk to. They're the people that when I see, I want to talk to. Meaning, not everybody when I see, I want to talk to. In case you didn't get the inference. Beware that we never move on. We never move on from or move away from it. No, we don't move on. Look, if you've been saved a hundred years, you don't move on from the gospel. What are you moving on to? There's nothing to move on to. But that's not what happens. What happens? We, what happens? You, you have people who have... Uh, self-esteem issues they have self-worth issues 
Uh, they're, it's just, they're just have, they have problematic flaws in their character. And so they want so desperately to be, I'm not sure, you know, looked up to or admired or respected or whatever the case may be. And so they, they're consumed with this some, you know, they're moved, they moved on from the gospel. And they want to know all this obscure information. They want to know. Want to be an expert about all this nonsensical stuff. Now, remember, remember last Sunday, the whole chapter 4, chapter 5, the whole chapters of Hosea, God's huge complaint with his people was, they don't know me personally. Now, they knew a lot of stuff. They had all this information. This is exactly what was going on in Hosea. You're just consumed with all this other stuff. All you want to talk about is stuff, all this other stuff that's on the periphery. And you, it's because you've, you've intellectually moved on from the gospel. Now, I don't think that's how that went down. I think you jumped over the gospel. See, if the gospel, if you, if you encounter the gospel in a personal way, I'm not sure you can move up, move past it. That's my great concern. How could you move past it? It never gets, in fact, not only does it not get old, it gets sweeter with time. It gets more amazing with time. It gets more, I mean, you know, my awe doesn't diminish over time. It grows, right? Yes. But why do we need to beware? Well, because there's always a temptation to dwell on what is unprofitable and useless. I mean, it's interesting. Paul just just comes straight out. He's like, it's unprofitable and useless. I'm so glad I didn't have to say that. He said it. So what, what, what? I mean, what are you thinking of? Because my head is filled with unprofitable and useless things that I hear people rambling and bambling about. Hmm? I mean, you know, you, you can, you could, so you're, you know, you're, you're reading books and you want to teach a class about, uh, amillennialism or premillennialism. No, you're not. What's wrong with you? What, what, what? You're obsessed with understanding something that the Bible says we, we're not going to know. I mean, think about the, the, the hundreds of millions of dollars that Christian people have spent buying books and attending conferences that are all based around, you know, uh, knowing when the end is going to come. Nobody read their Bible? Everybody just missed that whole thing? I mean, my thing is, is like if you go to that conference... 
Clearly, the only people at that conference have decided that God's a liar. Because he said, you can't know. So I don't want to talk about it. Just saying. We're going to analyze and we're going to have, you know, let's, let's, have a, let's go to a conference or read 10 books or have a big, you know, conversation about uh, is the Genesis creation account literal or metaphoric? Really? I mean, but I'm, some of you are in the camp. Get all wrapped up in it. Books and websites and webinars and conferences and really? First of all, number one, what does it change? Zero. Number two, you're telling me, you're telling me that you don't have a problem believing that God can redeem your sorry, wicked soul but you can't stretch your brain around the fact that he created the heavens and the earth in six days. Really? Because I'm saying redeeming my wicked black heart is more incredible than creating everything in one hour. You see what I mean? Like, really? That's, that's your hang-up? That's what you're stuck on? And what, what eternal difference does it make? Whose eternity is affected by it? But let's just, let's just have this endless debate about it. Hmm. Well, are we going to call this room that we meet in The sanctuary or the auditorium? That's what you're hung up on? What we call the room. I don't mean you. I just mean these are the kinds of things that churches get all twisted up on. And here's the thing. You got to understand by what Paul says here. He's not talking about just preaching. He's talking about our conversations. Because you can tell by what he says. See, back in verse 8, he said, This is a faithful saying, and these things, the gospel, I want you to affirm constantly, or that word, continually, or daily a lot of times it would be translated. So we're not talking about, this isn't just Titus when he's addressing the congregation. This is the congregation when they're addressing each other. And this is Titus when he's talking to people every day. And this is all of us that, you know, we should all be asking ourselves, why are we not talking about the gospel? Yeah. 
That doesn't mean that there's nothing else to talk about, but it's just, uh, you know, we ought to have a low, uh, low tolerance for a whole bunch of talking about anything other than the gospel. I mean, I can talk for five minutes about this or that or ten minutes for this or that or something, but, you know, then I'm done. Because who cares? What difference does it make? It's not going to change anything. What about eternity? What about the gospel? So here's what Paul's advice to us would be. Paul would say to me and you, he would say, here's what you need to do. In every place and in every time and with everyone, you should stress gospel things. You should be spinning things back to the gospel. When people want to divert the conversation one way, there's a reason for that. You ought to divert it back the other way. You ought to do the same thing with your kids. They want to talk about this, you divert it back this way. So I can talk about anything and just twist it back to the gospel. Well, how does that relate to the gospel? If you believe the gospel, how does that change the way that you see things or think about things or worry about things or whatever the case may be, right? Yeah. So see, there's, there's multitudes of things in this life that I enjoy and that I like and that I'm interested in. But they all pale in comparison to the gospel. And whenever I'm talking about any of those things, I want to talk about those things in light of the gospel. I want to make sure that I have a gospel-centric uh, you know, view on those things, that I participate in them in a gospel-centered way, that I think about them, that I worry about them, that are whatever the case may be, that it's in a gospel-centered way. So that way you can, you can enjoy the good gifts that God's given you without getting into idolatry and all sorts of other problems. If the gospel is central to your heart and mind, well then, you won't have to worry about anything else. It'll take care of itself. So you think, well, you know, who, who would not do this? Because remember, Paul is writing to Titus about the way, not only is he writing to Titus about the way Titus needs to to lead these believers, but he's also writing to the believers that Titus is going to lead. So he's talking to this group, their leader and the group. And so, you know, who is, who is in Crete who has heard the gospel, received the gospel, or made a profession, or, or is hanging around the church, or whatever the case may be, but who is, you know, Oh, you know, the, the love of the Father and the grace of the Son and the renewing of the Spirit. Well, you know, that's okay, but, you know, I'm more focused on making money or the economy or finding a spouse or raising my kids or whatever the case may be. Well... The Bible's very clear about who would not do this. Who would be sitting in church and not do this? Those with a hard heart that don't, not doesn't, know the kindness of God. 
See, for example, in Hebrews chapter 3, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So you've been in proximity, you've been around God, you've heard the gospel, you've been rubbed up against by the gospel, but instead exhort or encourage one another daily while it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You see, one of the, one of the most important things when a person, when God begins to work in a person's heart and, and somebody begins to, to get gospel exposure for the first time is that God wants to put people in their life and in their path that are, that are very gospel-centered because what they need is to, they need to see and understand the way the gospel works in the flow of normal life. Like it's not just the fact that I'm a sinner in need of salvation, but how does that work in my relationships? How does that work in the way that I work at my job? How does that work in the way that I steward my finances? How does that work in my other relationships and all of these things? And so that's where discipleship comes in, that that God wants to have people in, in these before pre-conversion, as he's working in people's lives. And then, of course, post-conversion. But in these very formidable months and years, in the beginning, as you're learning to walk, you've got to be in a place where you can see examples of how this works out. It's so important. It's so important. Because just because somebody starts going to church, just because somebody mentally... Uh, you know, accepts uh, the gospel, listen, their heart can still be hardened by unbelief. They need to be encouraged, encouraged daily while it's called today. That is a, a, a statement of urgency. Lest your heart be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Remember, Jesus comes along in the in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, and he said, with regards to this issue of unity, he said, blessed are the peacemakers. And every one of the Beatitudes comes with this reward. You know, like if it's blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. But when he gets to the peacemakers, he said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be, what does he say? They shall be called Sons of God. Now that's interesting. So what is the implication for those who are not peacemakers? In other words, a son of God, that's somebody who's adopted into the family. That's somebody who has an inheritance, right? So if you're not a son or a daughter, then you're an enemy. With no inheritance. Well, you have an inheritance, but it's not from God. And so there's a warning. There's a warning. The Bible wants to warn us. What matters in our culture as opposed to what matters in reality according to Scripture? See, we live in a world that is obsessed, literally obsessed with self-expression. 
that we need to be able to express ourselves and that we, you know, and, and we, we think everyone should be, you know, blessed with our opinion. And everyone has one. And everyone has the right to express that opinion. Well, is that what the Bible says? Look at verse 10. Reject a divisive man after the first or second admonition or warning, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Now, does that sound like? In other words, when you encounter someone who is exercising their self-expression and their self-expression is errant, that should give you great concern. You should, you should move into that situation in mercy. Because they're, what's happening is they're self-condemning. And, and here's how that you see where the mercy is. It doesn't say just reject them, does it? No. After the what? First or second warning. Mercy. When you... When you encounter someone who is contentious, divisive, who wants to talk about all these things that aren't the gospel, the most unloving and unbiblical thing you can do is say nothing because they're self-condemning. Look at the, look, knowing such a person is warped and sinning, like, if we ought to have compassion on anyone, it ought to be this person, right? Yes. And so, surely I would believe that after the first time, after the first conversation, uh, I mean, my experience has been that, you know, people, people who have been regenerate, well, when you sit down with them and say, listen, I'm concerned about some of this stuff, and you talk to them, they receive that. There's, the Spirit of God in them receives that, and they realize they got off track. Certainly the second time. Hey, remember we had this conversation, and now you're, you're going again. But a lot of times once is enough. But if once doesn't work and twice doesn't work, then you've got to take matters into your own hands because now you're putting yourself in danger. And this rejection that Paul's talking about is an act in and of itself of mercy, right? Yes, of love. Just like in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, if you have someone who is sexually immoral and they're unrepentant, don't even eat with them. That's not to punish them. That's to... Get them to turn. That's an act of love. So the world values the individual over community. 
That's what the world values. I have the right to do this. I have the right to identify this way. I have the right to feel this way, to think this way, to speak this way, to live this way, to do this, to do that. That's the whole world that we live in. Everything is about individuality. But that's not the way it is in Christ. See, in Christ, this is a very, we have a whole different operating system. Completely different. In Christ, the family always takes priority over individualism. Always. In every situation. So this is one of the top three or four most difficult things about being a leader in the church. This issue right here. Because you're constantly drawn into conversations where you have to straighten things out according to this principle that is anti-culture. And all the enculturated people are bent because their self-expression is being hindered. But that's not how it works. See, when you are born again, you're born into a family, and that family always takes priority. Always. Always. God will always do what's best for the family. Always. Always. It's what he's always going to do. And that's what your leaders are always going to strive to do. And that is a very hard thing to do. Very, very hard. But you just have to be steadfast. You just have to be immovable when it comes to you. You just have to understand that that's just the way it is. See, how? Because it, it would be so easy to just accommodate. It's so easy. I mean, is it really going to be the end of the world? I mean, you know. Can't you see me? I'm like, Frank, I know you got, you know, this community group and they're, you know, studying some, having some big 10-week study on some wacko thing and just let them go, Frank. It's okay. Don't, don't stress about it. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, that's not happening. I mean, we can't do that. We're going to have to give account for that. I mean, the elders get totally, uh, you know, just wrecked about any time that there's you know, false doctrine, or there's just, you know, pointless and useless things taking the place of the gospel. That's a terrible thing. People wrapped up in their own preferences and their own likes and their own, it's a terrible thing. Because in Christ, the family takes priority. And, and so how do we stay on track? How do we do that? Because it's super hard. But you got to stay on track too. So I'm going to tell you how we stay on track so you can stay on track. We just remember a few things. 
First of all, we remember John 17. We know the Bible says that Christ died so that we might be one. So do you know what can't be one? What can't be one is you cannot be one with a bunch of mavericks. You can't be. It won't work. You see? So here's the way it's going to work. It's going to work the same way it should work in a healthy family. In a healthy family, there has to be some authority structure in the family or else it's going to be chaos. And once there's some healthy authority structure, and healthy, healthy. And so as the family makes decisions, the whole family works in the context of the decision. So in other words, if the decision is made that we're going to go on vacation and this is where we're going to go, well, if you don't want to go there, this is where we're going on vacation. Maybe next year we'll get to go where you want to go, but this year we're going here or we're not going at all and you're just going to have to suck it up, buttercup. Right? I mean, right? Because what you're, because now, because we would automatically have grave concern if you're like, yeah, it was wonderful. You know, we all went, you know, but one of my kids didn't go because they didn't want to do that. So we bought them a plane ticket and they went to, what? Negative. What are we doing here? Now, if they're grown, moved out of the house, that then gone with you self but i mean if we if we live together under this roof and this is what the family's doing then we all doing it and that means everybody's got to make sacrifice because lord knows the person in authority does a lot of things they don't want to do so it's the same way in this family you can't have mavericks can't have people that are wanting to go off you know because why because Whatever you do affects everybody else. And the thing is, you got to realize it affects everyone else. That's what we realize. So when you get some great idea that we don't think is very great, don't take it personal. It's just not good for the whole family. If it's not good for the whole family, then, well, we can't have mavericks. It doesn't, it won't work. Christ died that we may be one. Like, I don't know, I don't know what could be more convincing than that. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 1. See, the whole book of Ephesians, the theme of the letter to Ephesus was all about unity. He says, he says that everything that God's doing now is leading towards this one thing, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So do you know what we're headed for? We're headed for an eternity of perfect unity. And so what we want to do is we want to mimic where we're going as much as we can now. We want to practice. We want to prepare for the future. Eternity, there is no division in eternity. There's no, no, but because now some of you, maybe you've never thought about this before. You know, you kind of think, you know, you're, you're, you're pushing back because you don't like to be told. And you, you know, 
like your self-expression and you value all your opinions and you which you know maybe they have value maybe they don't i'm not saying that that we all don't have opinions that matter but here's what i am saying when you get to heaven what do you think it's what do you think it's like in eternity you, you think you got anybody you know calling their own shots Huh? You think you got anybody, you know, deciding, hey, maybe we're going to go, nah, I'm not really with that plan. I want to go this plan. I mean, what do you think? You, you think? you think in heaven there's just this, uh, you know, everybody, you, you think there's anybody picketing, protesting? I mean, seriously, that is, it's funny because it's ridiculous. So shouldn't we be striving for that now? Well, of course we should. Paul is passionate about unity in the church because it's God's eternal plan. See, we're supposed to be a, a, a representation. It may be dim at times and faint at times, but a representation of what's to come. This is why Paul is so serious about dealing with disunity. So here's what Paul says. He says that those who are argumentative and refuse to repent are warped and sinful and that their conduct has made them self-condemned. You know, I just cannot overstress how much that should not make us angry but break our heart. Something has went way bad wrong. Self-condemned. Good gracious. Now, is Paul suggesting that we practice unthinking obedience? I mean, clearly that would be a bad idea. Clearly. You see, because if... If, if you're thinking, then you're thinking, okay, so how do we, how do we navigate? Like, let's say we all agree, okay, in Christ, family first, right? Okay, we all agree. Great. And we all say, which, you know, we are an oddball crew, which we overwhelmingly do. We have a tremendous unity here that we're so thankful for and so grateful that God has given us. It's wonderful. But we should have this conversation. Because you shouldn't just be like, well, you know, what, whatever they say, that's best for the family. I don't think that'd be wise. I do not think that would be wise. I think you got to have some grid. You got to have some understanding. You got to have some metric. Do you think the Bible's just slinging this out there like just, you know, just go wherever they tell you to go? Man, I mean, you might end up Mormon. Right? I mean, listen, you got to remember I'm human, which means I'm fallible. So. You better not put your trust in me. You're going to be in trouble. 
So how do we do this? What do we do? What's the, I mean, you know, how do we strike a balance? So here's how the Bible would answer that question. It's very simple. We go right back to what Paul says in Titus chapter 3. If our leaders deny the gospel or get these things wrong, then they must be challenged. 100%. 100%. These things. So what Paul defines as the gospel, that's got to be right. It can't be anything but right. And here's the, here's the thing. It's a uh, part of the, the beauty of the way this operates, the way God designed the church to operate is, first of all, you, you would, if, if you were moving to, if you got a job transfer to another state and you came and sat down and said, Pastor Tony, we're moving and, you know, this is what's going on and, and, you know, can you, I mean, I have this conversation all the time. Can you help me find a church and wherever? The first thing I say is, you got to find the first thing. Number one, does the church preach the gospel? So the first thing I'm going to do is go start listening to podcasts of churches in that area. If, you know, I'll narrow it down to, okay, I think these are probably the best choice. I'm going to listen to podcasts. But then the second question is, is there a plurality of leadership? Because if they just got one demagogue running the whole situation, it's probably not going to go good. Okay, so that's the first thing. Then, but what happens when you get in that situation is in a gospel-centered church, with a, then it's this, we have this iron sharpening iron relationship. Maybe you don't realize. Some of you, maybe you think, well, you come to church and I sharpen your blade. But many of you sharpen mine. And here's the thing. The beauty of it is, is that I know, I know that I am in a context where if I deviate from the gospel, you, many, many of you will know, which is wonderful. That's beautiful. You see, that doesn't, that doesn't threaten me. That delights me. That's, that's glorious that's how it's supposed to be and it's very comforting to me because remember i don't want to be self-condemned i don't i i know better than anybody that the the teacher's going to be held to a stricter judgment right so if i'm in error i want to know What I don't want to do is be preaching every week in front of a bunch of immature people that don't know the difference. That would be the scariest thing in the world. Right? And so that's the beautiful dynamic that God has created. So we got to understand all human leaders are fallible. All human leaders are fallible. And we have to remember, you have to constantly remember, which hopefully, you know, um, the, as you are, as you interact with the gospel around here, hopefully as you do that, you know, my prayer is that you would, and many of you, so many of you do. I mean, so many of you do. I know, I know that you, you pray for your pastors and your elders. And we are so grateful. 
Because you have to remember, not only are we human, but we've been called to an impossible task. you got to remember that. An impossible task. So when you, I mean, it happens. When you leave church and go, well, you know, that wasn't the best thing I ever heard. It happens. Remember. You think you can do better? What you got? Huh? In other words, what do you got? Like before you go to critiquing, what's your sermon? You want to take a slug at Hosea? Come on. You come into my office and give me your best shot because I want to hear it. You see what I'm saying? Like, you know, man, hey, it's an impossible task. So pray for us. Because we definitely pray for you. So, yeah, if, we, if, if, if there's any deviation from the gospel or these things, then it's got to be challenged no matter who it is. Nobody's above that. Nobody's above that. So, but, because we still haven't answered the whole question. But what do we do if we get the gospel and these things right? Then trust your leadership on the other things. You see, your mom and dad, you know, they get up every day, they go to work, they feed you, they provide for you, they clothe you, they help you with your homework, they, they teach you how to ride a bicycle, they teach you how to tie your shoes, they're doing everything they, you know, they're, they're tired, they're wore out. I mean, you know, in a, in a perfect world, hey, look at, so, you know, little children, have a little grace in your heart when they decide you're, they're, we're going to go on vacation somewhere you don't really particularly want to go. Amen? Yeah. It's not these things, and it's not the gospel. It's all these other things that are unfruitful, that are useless. It's all that. Yeah. Yeah. You see, if the main thing is the main thing, okay, then, then let's rock and roll. Right? Yes. Let's get after it. Let's get to work. If we got the gospel right, okay. So Paul's advice to us would be when it comes to gossip or grumbling or division, be a buffer. Be a buffer. See, that's what he means when he says reject a divisive person after the first or second warning. That is be a buffer. That's what 
our job is. That's what we're doing when we're moved in mercy to go to somebody and say, you know, I mean, I, I, I really feel like this is all unprofitable. It's unprofitable. See, a lot of times people ask me questions and I can answer the question. But I don't because it's an unprofitable, because I don't want to encourage you in something unprofitable. Why are you worried about that? You know, I mean, the only reason why I know about it is because I have to because of you. See? See, I, I have to know about all these ridiculous things. Because if I don't, I can't, you know, steer the family away from the. So, so you know, every time some new thing comes up, then I have to go and invest time in it because I need to know about it because I need to protect you from it. So believe me, you know, when I'm reading four books about, you know, all this, you know, all the different, you know, opinions about creation, I'm not a happy camper. But I'm learning it. So that way, you know, I mean, I remember four or five years ago when, when, oh, man, all that stuff was just hitting a fever pitch. It was like, But it's just, you know, something I had to do. That's one of those things that you have to do that you don't want to do. But, but for goodness sakes, if I didn't have to do that, if I wasn't a pastor, you couldn't pay me to read that garbage. Could pay me to read it. It's totally fruitless. I mean, I like to get kicked out of seminary because they, uh, one of my professors wanted me to, wanted us all to write a research paper on premillennialism and amillennialism and postmillennialism, I about flipped my lid. I'm like, I don't, why do I, I don't, I don't want to write a paper about that. I don't care. Does the Bible say definitively? No. Well, then I don't want to talk about it. I don't, I mean, why, and I definitely don't want to write a paper about it. Good gracious. But I understood, you know. He sat me down. He said, now, you know, you're going to need to know this information because you're going to have to deal with sheep who are wrapped up in all this stuff all the time, who are worried about their preference. Every time you talk to them, they only talk about their preference, whatever their little pet thing is. That's all they talk about. Let's invest our time and energy in what matters most. Let's do that. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. Spend all my time thinking about, talking about the gospel. And here's the thing. Rejoicing in the fact that, because here's the thing. This is amazing. Imagine. Because you think it's hard in your family, because it is hard in your family. Imagine if you had five or 600 kids, how hard it would be. You know, try to get everybody on the bus, try to get everybody on the plan, try to get everybody on the, try doing that. Huh? Yeah. 
But here's the beautiful part of it. Is that in the midst of all that chaos, you know, because we're all unique individuals and we all, you know, we all, we all see things from our own viewpoint. We all have different experiences and different personalities and we're all unique. And, isn't that, and that's the beautiful thing that Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians, that, that it's our diversity that makes us beautiful in unity. That's what the, only the gospel can unify us. And so here's what the point of all this is, is that what, how do we know when the gospel's unified us? Is that when, because I can assure you, I can 100% assure you that it never goes around here ever 100% the way Tony wants it to go. Never. It's always a compromise. You know why? Well, that's good because Tony's not always right. No, do not tell Lisa I said that. But it never does. But here's the thing. As, as, as I don't always get what I want and you don't always get what you want, and we all, but you know what we get? Together, we get to rejoice in, look at what God's doing among us. Look at what God's doing among us. You see, every time God grow somebody every time the, the i mean this church is so filled with sanctification it's unbelievable it's such a beautiful thing and isn't that that's what's that's what matters that's what it's all about and you you see people who who would be or, or have experienced rejection their whole life in every other arena but yet are just welcomed in with open arms and loved and we see God just transform them and work in them. We see, we see all the beautiful life change that goes on around us. We, we get to celebrate all the multitude of baptisms. We get to just celebrate all the things that God does. And here's the thing. that So looking at that is so amazing and wonderful that all these other things that I wish were different or we could change this or I'm not really happy with that or all, it's okay. Because look at what God's doing. Like every day, I'm like, wow. Look at what God's doing. I mean, you know, we're in a, 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 a season when, and, and I understand, you know, and, that, and that's good. Because to a degree, you know, you're in somewhat of a bubble, and, you know, I'm, I'm, as your shepherd, I'm grateful for that in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? I mean, if you, if you, if you are spent time and, and understood what's going on right now at the Southern Baptist Convention that's happening right now, it's very, very, very trying times. Very trying times. And the future is very uncertain. And there's a lot, of, there's a lot of, of discord and a lot of struggle and a lot of animosity and pain. And there's a lot of what we're talking about tonight going on. And if you understood, you know, how special what we have is, if you understood just the things like the... 
the latest statistics are uh, one of the most shocking things is uh, among, with SBC churches right now in the United States is is the 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 shocking rate at which they're aging. Shocking. So if things continue the way they are, most because we're they're already at about. Uh, Three out of every four is in plateau or declining. And then of the 25% that's not in that plateau or declining uh, category, the majority of them are aging at a rate to where they'll be non-existent in just a very short time. And yet in this demographic, and I have no explanation why, but in this church, every year, we're younger than the year before. And what makes absolutely no sense is that, can't believe I'm going to say this, you got an old pastor. See, the only churches that are getting younger have like 28-year-old pastors. And yet, we're reaching young people constantly. The median age keeps going down, 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 down. That is the most remarkable special gift that and we could just take it for granted and not realize that. But most of the conversations that churches are having in the United States is how do we reach young people? And we're not even having the conversation. It just happens. Today, today, our children's minister called me and said, uh, in a panic, I'm like, well, what's the problem? I mean, we got uh, Brian's in Dominican Republic, Siobhan's out of town, and everybody's freaking out because right now the number of kids signed up for VBS is the highest number that's ever attended VBS, and we already know that a couple weeks out from VBS is a, you know, that we're going to have a 20% population that shows up the day up and we've already exceeded any number that we've ever hit ever and they're trying to figure out and they're all in and I'm going praise the Lord keep on bringing them problems I mean we'll figure it out I mean we're just the blessed people we're blessed people. You know, we, we don't have conflicts and division. And, you know, we have peace and harmony and love. And when we have problems, we have problems. We work through them. Or we don't work through them. But here's what we don't do. We're not shying away from it. We're having a conversation. Yeah. And you know what? That's what Paul does because Paul practiced what he preached. He didn't just tell us all this stuff. Look at how he ends the letter. This is so amazing. He says, when I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicolopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on his way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. 
All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. You know, I want you to remember when we started 1 Corinthians. And you can circle the name Apollos. You remember the big problem in Corinth was the, all the contention between uh, where they had pitted Paul and Apollos against each other. And, you know, we know a lot about Apollos. He was a very, very gifted orator. He was a very, very theologically astute teacher. And people loved him. And Paul could have easily been threatened by him or could have felt uh, pressure from him. And it was a, but instead, what does Paul do? Paul embraces. Paul's not going to let the devil have the victory. That you know what? There's room in the, the family of God for all the gifts that God puts in the family of God. And that it's not competitive. And it's not, um, you know, we're not territorial. We, no. Someone asked me uh, a few months ago, uh, I was having a conversation with them, and they said, they asked me, how do I encourage myself when I need encouragement? It was, I thought it was a thoughtful question. No one's ever asked me that before. Probably, you know, they expected me to say something very, you know, like, well, I, you know, go to my prayer closet and open my Bible, and so, but, you know, Sure, I get, but I mean, when I'm, when I'm down and need encouragement, what do I do? And so I told him the truth. I listen to Pastor Matt and Pastor Brian preach. It encourages the fire out of me. When I listen to them preach, I mean, I am so jazzed. I mean, it just energizes me to like nothing else. It's what I do. And I've never really thought about why until, you know, writing this message, and I realized, you know, that's why. When I listen to them preach, it's so encouraging to me. Man, I love it. It's the blessing of God upon us. And Christ died that we all may be one. So let's, you know, hey, we're amazing. But we can do better. We can do better. And so let's, let's focus on the, these things. And let's don't get tangled up on things that are unprofitable and would just self-condemn us. Amen.